Hello, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Morton, I'm a songwriter and creativity coach and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for uh, meaningful change from the inside out. In this week's episode, I want to explore our relationship with desired and positive life changes. This is the kind of uh, the instigate part of the three aspects of change that I've been thinking about recently, the stuff that we're looking at in the haven during our month of change this year. Last time we looked at the idea of embracing change that we know is coming but might not like, the change that comes as a result of um, time passing, the things we can expect Um, Do we embrace them? Do we try and resist them? In the future, we're going to look at absorbing unexpected change that kind of hits us from out of the blue. And in this episode, we're going to explore the change that we are in the driving seat of or that we can be in the driving seat of. Our relationship with making change happen, pursuing projects, designing life in meaningful ways. And in particular, I've been exploring the differences between fear and and wariness when it comes to our relationship with the idea of success um, and the idea of failure and the idea of transitions in life. I want to look at the part our sensitivity might play as well in raising awareness about the implications of change for us as individuals and for us as wider society as well. How do we partner with ourselves so that rather than seeing fear and wariness as a problem to eradicate, We might acknowledge what these feelings tell us about what matters most to us so that we can design a more meaningful and enjoyable path for our lives. We might experience change as a threat to our sense of safety. It can be difficult to embrace and initiate even if we desire it. The mere exposure effect or familiarity principle is this idea that people prefer or maybe like something merely because they've been exposed to it over time. So we end up choosing things that might not necessarily be what we want or be the best for us, but simply because we're familiar with them. This episode started life as a small seed around the idea of change as a threat, not just change we don't want, but change that we do want. You know, why do we sometimes react to change, even if it's deeply desirable, by turning away from it? Why do we avoid acting on those things that are important to us? And why do we sabotage things that are going well, or maybe go completely overboard with wholesale change when all we need is a little tweak or to edit things slightly? So I'm really interested by this concept of fear of success. It's something that I've thought about a lot over the years, something that I've I've kind of been grappling with and trying to work through, like, is this something that I experience? Um, it's something I've seen written about a lot over the years as well. Um, essentially, the idea being that people avoid putting themselves forward or they um, hold themselves back or self-sabotage in a variety of ways, not because they're afraid of failing at any given kind of um, objective, but because they're afraid of succeeding. And what does this mean? Um, you know, what do we mean by success in this context? And what is the fear that we are describing? Um, and, and so I want to kind of ask this question of whether fear of success is real or not to some degree. Um, in an episode of her Stepping Off Now podcast, um, Kendra Patterson was examining a, an article called Eight Reasons of Fear of Success, Not Failure is Holding You Back. 
And I'll put a uh, link to that article in the show notes um, and to Kendra's podcast, because she really got me thinking with this. She was kind of asking whether what people might describe as a fear of success might just be another term for a fear of failure. And she was kind of like grappling with this, like, is she, she kind of like, I, I don't think fear of success is a real thing. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, um, and it was, it was kind of like articulating something that I've been wondering about a lot over the years. Um, and I'm going to explore some of my own kind of thoughts around this in this episode. And that article that, um, that she was citing looks at why we might sabotage progress or turn away from opportunities when we are, um, moving in a desirable direction. You know, we've, we've chosen, okay, I want to I want to succeed at this thing or I want to move in this way. Um, Why do we turn away from that or why might we sabotage progress? Um, And it suggests reasons for for holding back on or self-sabotaging your own success might be because, um, so the eight things are, you're afraid of the unknown. You're afraid of the demands that success might make of you. You're afraid of the responsibility success might bring. You're afraid of the attention success could attract. You're afraid of losing your identity. You're afraid success won't bring you happiness. You're afraid of losing those you care about. And you're afraid you might get carried away with success. And so each of these might actually be perceived as a fear of failure, largely underpinned by a worry of being unable to cope with or respond to the results of change rather than the change itself, rather than the success itself. And so like, what is fear of failure? I guess in many ways, it's the fear of the unknown. It's that first point on that list. Um, Maybe that's like an umbrella for a few of them. You know, what kind of demands might be made of me? What kind of responsibilities will I be expected to adopt? What does attention feel like? And what kind of things will I have to um, kind of get in place or change? Or, you know, how, how am I going to protect myself against the things that that attention might bring with it? How will I feel if things actually go well? What will that do to my self-concept? What will happen to my relationships? How will other people respond to things changing for me? And so on. And so I guess it's a mixture of fears at what will happen if I'm not very good at coping with or responding to change in a grounded and sustainable way. Um, And the fear of all the unanticipated byproducts of things going well, again, linked to potential failure or an inability to cope or even a lack of desire to spend time on all of these things that you suddenly realize are going to potentially become a contingent part of succeeding in this in this particular endeavor or in a general sense so perhaps it would be accurate to say fear of success is worry worry being an intangible or a detached sense of concern for a future that may or may not come to pass And at this point, it's probably uh, a good time to define success because otherwise this gets really slippery. It gets hard to, you know, work out what we're talking about. Like, what does this word even mean? Um, And I think that's a really important thing to to realise. Like when we talk about fearing success or worrying about what success might bring, what is the, this success that we're thinking of? What, what are we talking about? Have, have you ever really thought about what success means to you? How would you define success? I think it's, it's kind of difficult in broad and general terms to, to define what we mean 
by this word. And yet it's a word we, we use a lot. It's a, a word we assume other people have the same sort of definition for as us. Um, and we think we know, you know, what people are referring to when we hear them use it. So we're going to be circling around this this question throughout the episode. Um, but for now, and for, for the purposes of this little section, I think it's probably helpful to make it specific and relevant to a particular pursuit or a particular uh, project. You know, success uh, in this context is deciding what you want to accomplish or acquire or achieve and then setting out to get it. And then the success is the act of achieving or accomplishing or acquiring it. Um, so let's go back through those reasons that we might hold back on or self-sabotage our own um, quote unquote success when we've um, picked a meaningful project that we want to make happen. There's something that, you know, we really care about this. This is something I want to see occur. Um, we believe success is possible and realistic, uh, and yet we might be afraid of achieving it. Why might that be? Um, so that first one, you're afraid of the unknown. The familiarity principle, uh, as I touched on a little bit earlier, suggests that we choose things that we are familiar with over potentially better options, especially the mere exposure effect, which is about a less conscious drip feed of exposure to certain ideas. There's some really interesting studies done into this and looking at uh, kind of the opposite effect whereby people would prefer something novel over something they're familiar with. But this seems to happen when you're um, asked to make a judgment call comparing things rather than gravitating um, towards something familiar. So if you're asked to choose between two, two things or, or whatever, you might pick the option that you're less familiar with. It's got a novelty that might seem more attractive or it's somewhere you're not and, and you feel like, oh yeah, I'd love to be in that position. I'd love to have that. But if you've grown familiar with something over time and you're given the option for what you want to pick, you're probably more likely to pick that than take a risk on something that you've only just seen. And so applied to change, we might consider the kind of reality that we generally live within as this thing we're exposed to, this familiarity that we are used to. And if someone holds, um, you know, this mundane everyday life up and says, uh, do you prefer this or do you prefer this beautiful um, vacation? Um, as we're pre presented with it, it, we might be like, yeah, the vacation sounds great. I'd love to, you know, live on the beach or whatever it might be. But then if we're presented with these as, um, as genuine choices for, okay, this is where you're going to spend the next five years, um, it's likely that even if we love the idea of living in this beautiful paradise more than where we are now, we're likely to, to gravitate towards the thing we're familiar with because we know it, we understand it, we can predict how life will feel and look. And so when we're faced with the, the kind of the crux of the matter, that, that kind of decision-making moment, we are, we are likely to, to resort back to the thing we're familiar with, even though there's this sense of, oh, I really want that other thing. Um, there's too much unknown about the other option. This is especially true if we don't have a clear path or an understanding of, you know, of getting from here to there. Maybe this does become a real goal that we have, this, this place, this, this vacation sort of um, destination. But if we don't understand how we're going to get from here to there, um, it becomes much harder to, to kind of embrace it. So the second one, you're afraid of the demands that success might 
make of you. Um, an aspect of success that we might worry about is around losing control. Again, it's worth looking at this in a particular context, you know. So for me, I've always been wary of uh, demands that could come from achieving certain types of success uh, with my music. You know, there's kind of a wariness born from stories that uh, friends have told about being in a variety of positions, having their creative agency stripped from them by demands uh, made around the kind of work that they're expected to make after achieving what looks like really cool successes you know labels have refused to support releases that don't fit the specific specifications that they have this demand to make more of what worked is also something people talk about whereby those making the demands cannot see that the reason for the success in the first place wasn't the component aspects of the outcome but it was the elements of surprise and novelty and difference that are really difficult to replicate especially under pressure it's the reason we talk about the difficult second album Success is hard to to kind of emulate, even your own success. Um, we need to be permitted to experiment, to fail, to flop. Other demands might come from success, you know, people demanding time, energy, attention from you. You might become time poor and lose the resources that gave rise to success in the first place. Again, this is something that speaks to the difficult second album, trying to create something equally good and perhaps better than the original thing while coping with a whole load of new demands at the same time. There might also be a worry that you'll be put in difficult positions where you'll kind of lose control of your calendar unless you invoke strict boundaries. And this can just sound scary and tiring, um, especially if you've got experiences of that in the past or you've seen other people kind of snowed under by um, by these sorts of trappings of success these things that make uh, success something that actually you know that that looks like an overwhelming and an exhausting thing to achieve and then the responsibility you're afraid the, of the responsibility success might bring in what context might this one ring true uh, i guess at a fundamental level maybe the success you my experience in a career falls here. The fear of being responsible for other people or big decisions and outcomes. If you manage to succeed, you might just end up more stressed, more anxious about what could go wrong and wishing that you could go back to where it all began. Uh, this is what a lot of successful um, sports and entertainment people have talked about over the years. The purity of the task when there was no baggage around it. You know, Ayrton Senna described his early days in karting as pure racing, pure driving. There was no politics, no money involved, he said. There are artists, musicians, filmmakers who share similar sentiments. Yet there's also the ambition, the desire to be the best that they can be. And sometimes that requires a confrontation with the politics, with the money. You've got to sort of be in that arena in order to get to where you want to go. And we're going to get, get onto this uh, shortly as the kind of wariness of success part, what it means to be aware of the cost of success. Is it worth it? How can we prepare for it and mitigate against the stuff that could derail our progress? And even how can we gently rebel against the systems that give rise to these feelings? Are there unnecessary systems and structures or aspects of those things that actually hold back many amazing people from giving themselves to fields in which they could truly thrive in which, you know, we would all benefit from them being involved in? Then you're afraid of the attention success could attract. This is a big one in the modern world, I think. Again, if we think about success in terms of an endeavour going 
well. It's probably particularly applicable in the context of um, creativity or something which by virtue of it going well means people are going to notice it. They're going to notice you like that your reputation might spread and things like that. And people have opinions of the thing. People have opinions of you. Um, and while some people love the idea of attention, others uh, might find this a reason to hold back. This is certainly something that I've been very aware of for myself over the years. Um, and again, there's a, there's a wariness factor here. You know, we've all seen what happens to people when they um, are kind of thrust into the spotlight or they find themselves at the centre of attention. Um, you know, they might receive adoration from certain quarters, you know, they're being supported by all these people for, for this thing that they've done, this amazing what, whatever. And then uh, there might be a, a backlash, either directly in response to what they've done, um, as a sort of like this balanced view um, of the source material, so to speak, or in response to the positive response to what they've done. Um, you know, people who like provide the backlash against the fact that this has become popular, this has become successful, therefore let's bring it back down a peg or two. Awareness of attention as a mixed bag can be a really helpful way to design a path that allows us to make things work better for us. But it can also be a reason to hold back and not give ourselves and our creative outpourings fully to the world. So this is something that, you know, we've got to think about. Is this having is this a factor for us? Are we afraid of, um, you know, what we'll have to deal with when it comes to um, our work or ourselves getting attention as a result of moving down a particular path? And then you're afraid of losing your identity. So we've probably all experienced somebody else change in light of their own success in some way or another. Um, sometimes you see people come to life and become more of who they are as they move down their road of becoming. Um, you know, the light within burns brighter and you see them flourish as they find that sense of passion towards what they're doing. While other people might change in weird ways where perhaps they're like succeeding in a particular role or a field in, in their job or whatever, and they swap their sense of inside out being for an identity that comes from the outside in. Um, you know, it can happen when people become completely wedded to their job or role as if like, this is my identity. This is who I am. Um, you know, as, as who you are becomes associated with what you do. You might be afraid of losing yourself in that and you might be afraid of losing the many potentials for your life as well by narrowing along one particular path. You might feel like, okay, there's less scope for me to expand and explore the many parts of who I am when I succeed down this path that I'm on. In certain roles with those responsibilities we talked about and so on, there are limits placed on what is acceptable and what is expected of you. So success can have this, this kind of narrowing effect on these things, on the, the scope of how we're allowed to be, who we're allowed to be. And if we allow the ego to take charge, it can have us believing that we are what we do. And then we, we kind of lose that sense of ourselves within the success, within the role, within the, the symbolic identity of the thing that we are achieving and the next one was you're afraid success won't bring you happiness. This is an interesting one. So again, to reframe slightly, maybe this point is about being afraid that success will leave us disappointed, which it will. Because ultimately every success is just something that we end up absorbing 
um, integrating into, adapting to as a, as a new state of normal. It doesn't resolve everything. We soon move on to another endeavour. And that's actually what brings meaning and joy to life. Unless we are driven by this magical thinking in the pursuit of the ultimate fix, solution, answer, secret. In which case, we might be in this perpetual, frenetic pursuit of, of one change after another. Oh, this is going to be the success that changes everything. We're unable to stop striving and achieving because we're looking for the tweak or the shift that finally makes us, um, you know, happy ever after. Or we're stuck in place, unable to move forwards in the direction of things we enjoy and desire because we know that even if we do achieve something, it's not going to solve that incurable yearning. The answer isn't to give up desiring or to see desire as something bad, but rather to shift our relationship, our awareness, our understanding of the function desire has in our lives. It points us towards meaningful and imperfect endeavours. And then you're afraid of losing those you care about. So change has all sorts of knock-on effects that are difficult to measure and impossible to control. You know, relationships are an inevitable part of this for many reasons, perhaps due to routines and habits changing. You know, it's difficult to keep up with everybody that you'd like to. You'd end up, you know, not seeing those people. Um, You might end up losing people because you just sort of drift apart. Maybe you've lost other people to those identities that I mentioned earlier, or you become less interested in spending time with them because they're narrowing down a particular path and actually the things that you have in common become fewer and fewer. And so it just sort of naturally, um, the relationship naturally drifts apart because, you know, it's, it's just not that interesting to, to hang out with this person anymore. Or maybe it's, it's fear of how people might interact with you. I think this is the, the premise of this point in the original article where the focus is on how others see you in light of the changes that you're making or the success that you're experiencing. And this is understandable. You know, I wonder if you've experienced this in small ways. Maybe you've decided to change your habit or start a new hobby or approach things in a way that you haven't done before. And when other people sort of notice this and like maybe start making comments or react with surprise, uh, maybe even make a joke about it or, you know, ridicule you or respond with some kind of disdain at what you're doing. Like, what, why, are you, why are you doing that? Why, why would you want to change that? Um, and this is often a projection of insecurity and it's most extreme. It's the, the, this kind of sense of judgment being projected um, onto, onto themselves through you. In other words, take, taking your desire to change as a personal criticism of them. And this may happen in small ways, but it can happen in a greater sense as well. If you set out to make big changes or you embrace these projects that matter to you and you want to succeed at, they might end up, you know, we, we might lose some people who can't be happy for us um, or who are deeply driven by things like envy and resentment. But if we can find the courage and the bravery to keep taking those small steps in the direction we want to move, people are going to grow familiar with the path that we're on. And rather than seeing it through the eyes of that novelty and surprise that that might be there at the beginning, it's going to become part of the bigger story and just this this kind of sense of of who you are and what you're about. Um, Again, as I read the um, original article, I was struck by the sense that, that these are not things to dismiss and fight, but rather to converse with as we contemplate the potential role 
um, that these these fears might play in our in our relationship with change, because as we as we're going to get on to, if we are aware of our points of wariness, we can create effective paths that connect us with where we want to go, working with our fears rather than trying to deny or to destroy or to ignore them. And then finally, you're afraid you might get carried away with success. This is another one I couldn't quite figure out. Maybe it's more obvious than, than I was, uh, you know, kind of giving it credit for. But the original article says perhaps the thing you fear most is that upon achieving success, it won't be enough for you. You'll become obsessed with ever greater achievements and ever more challenging goals. You're afraid that success will take over your life and become the be all and end all of your existence. Again, we probably need to be specific about what we mean by success here. We definitely do. Um, Because to me, this doesn't sound like success. It sounds like striving for something unattainable. Um, In fact, it sounds like failure to succeed. If we think of success as reaching somewhere that you want to get. Uh, And this is the same as the point about happiness in that the fear that success, as we've defined it, is a mirage that never leads us anywhere meaningful. We place these great expectations on each of the mirages that we encounter or that we see up on the horizon, rather than allowing ourselves to enjoy the journey, the pursuit. This is a valid fear. It's a path that I've seen many people get sort of consumed by the belief that once I get to such and such a point, then I'll be satisfied or just a little bit more and then I'll be able to stop. This is a good thing to be wary of. But what if getting carried away by the journey isn't actually a bad thing if we relate to it in healthy ways. I mean, it's at the heart of the experimental approach to uh, discovery and flexible goal setting that I've loved so much through my life. So if we swap the word success for change or even for flow and the word afraid for excited, we might say that we're excited about getting carried away by flow. Um, And let's swap Let's swap away for forwards. So I'm excited about getting carried forwards by flow or in flow. I'm aware that any goal I reach and any problem I solve is not going to be the end of the journey. It won't be enough. I will still be dissatisfied. And I'm excited to keep going, to keep pushing myself and exploring the possibilities of my own life. Not because I'm searching for this this ultimate solution, this ultimate success, but because exploration and growth is what gives my life a sense of meaning and it connects me with myself, with the world and with other people. I wonder if you recognise the influence of any of those, uh, those fears, those eight fears from your own experiences. How have they impacted your decisions to embrace or to initiate change in your own life? And what could be Maybe a positive spin on these fears. If you, if you were to reframe, uh, you know, some of the others, for example, like you're curious rather than you're afraid, you're curious about the unknown. You're preparing for the demand success might make of you. You're embracing the responsibility and looking forward to building a support team who are going to help you work out how to navigate those responsibilities. You're indifferent to the attention that this might attract and you're focused on what matters most. You're becoming who you are, even as you and the people around you change in various ways. 
you know success won't bring you happiness. You're looking forward to seeing how your relationships are going to grow and develop from here on in and so on. Another aspect that we looked at when it comes to uh, fear, change and success is this idea of foreboding joy. Our fear that a successful feeling won't last and how that will feel. Again, perhaps linked to the idea of being unable to cope. Brené Brown says that scarcity and fear drive foreboding joy. We're afraid that the feeling of joy won't last or that we won't be enough or that the transition to disappointment or whatever is in store for us next will be too difficult. We've learned that giving in to joy is at best setting ourselves up for disappointment and at worst inviting disaster. And we struggle with the worthiness issue. Do we deserve our joy given our inadequacies and imperfections? What about the starving children and the war-ravaged world? Who are we to be joyful? Joy can feel uncomfortable and it might feel like a forbidden state. We might have grown up believing that we shouldn't feel joy when there's so much suffering in the world. Or as we chatted about in our Haven Cotter session, that we shouldn't do things um, just because they bring us joy. There should be some kind of utilitarian reason for our activities. Success is something that we give to others rather than enjoy for ourselves. Every activity must have some greater, some higher, some more noble purpose to it, underlying it. And Brené Brown continues, don't squander joy. We can't prepare for tragedy and loss. When we turn every opportunity to feel joy into a test drive for despair, we actually diminish our resilience. Yes, softening into joy is uncomfortable. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's vulnerable. But every time we allow ourselves to lean into joy and give in to those moments, we build resilience and we cultivate hope. The joy becomes part of who we are. And when bad things happen, and they do happen, we are stronger. We spoke as well of our experience of joyful people, those who live from that deep sense of self-acceptance and um, understanding of who they are. They make an impact on people, on the world around them, because they are real. They make us feel safe, valuable, accepted. Because joy breeds this kind of impact, even if there's no measurable outcome attached to it. There's no utilitarian reason for them to be joyful. With joy, we surrender to a sense of being in this moment. It paves the way for play, creativity and connection. It doesn't demand, it's not conditional, and it doesn't judge by external measurements. It's fully and completely here and now. To surrender to the moment, trusting that even if you have nothing to show for this, you're still worthy, you're still valuable, still accepted and acceptable. Foreboding joy might describe a superstitious worry about things going well. Maybe things sometimes feel too good to be true or too good to last. We might sabotage good things because the idea of losing them, not on our own terms, is too much to bear. We anticipate the point at which we will no longer feel joy. We fear it being taken away. But while loss and change and grief are all inevitable to varying degrees, blocking ourselves from joy doesn't do anything other than strip us of agency and a positive and life-giving energy in this present moment. 
And this speaks as well to the idea of anticipatory grief, which is when we anticipate and prepare for loss while the thing that we are ready to grieve is still with us. Emily Agnew um, has written about this, uh, has written a really lovely article on this topic. And, and she says to mourn something is also to celebrate it and that mourning things in advance doesn't count as gloomy behavior, especially as it introduces dangerously grateful tendencies. Um, it can heighten our awareness of all that is most precious. And she's writing about highly sensitive people. I think Elaine Aaron has written about this idea of anticipatory grief as well. Um, and it reminds me of this, the phrase, you know, this too shall pass, which is a mantra that works um, to, to help us get through hard times, you know, but also it helps us remember the fragility and the preciousness of the good times. And while at first glance, this kind of anticipatory um, grief might seem like a very dour way to, to think, it actually brings us into that place of gratitude. It brings us into, um, into the present, into the now, you know, counting our blessings, embracing gratitude, living in communion with the passing of time and the inevitability of change. And so this can be a real foundation of um, beauty, of kind of a great relationship with change. But, you know, when we mix anticipatory grief and foreboding joy, we can end up sabotaging our present for fear of losing it. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, I once let anticipatory grief get the better of me when I unsubscribed from a podcast that was like my favorite podcast in the whole world. Um, and I couldn't bear the idea of losing it. I couldn't bear the idea that they would, they would like stop producing it. Um, it'd become a really important part of my weekly routine. And, you know, I was afraid that they're suddenly going to decide to call it a day and that would be it. Um, and it'd be taken away from me. So I ended, <laughs> ended up sabotaging my own enjoyment by pulling the plug from my end um, and saying, right, I'm going to stop listening to that just in case it ends. Um, more than a decade later, that podcast is still going. The word wariness comes from the same root as awareness, to perceive, watch out for, be watchful, vigilant. Yes, I got it right. <laughs> I've tried saying that a number of times and ended up saying vigilant. Um, probably about five or six times I've recorded that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, deep processing is a major aspect of sensory processing sensitivity. Highly sensitive people might anticipate potential consequences and implications of change that are potentially overlooked or ignored by other people, um, maybe willingly, maybe um, kind of, you know, without awareness. This is a really valuable trait, but might be seen as negative in a world that values um, kind of constant outward expansion and perpetual growth and progress above depth, sustainability and integrity. And it might even come across as, as, or be seen as negative, be seen as pessimistic, cynical, holding things back, holding back society, holding back progress, all of these things. Um, and so we, in the Cotter session, we were exploring like how, how people have, um, you know, wh whether people kind of feel this, this sense of being able to anticipate potential risks that other people might overlook or ignore, and whether this feels like a, a positive thing. Um, a positive thing to have or it feels like a bit of a oh, I 
you know, I can see this, but if I raise this, people are just going to get annoyed. Um, and yeah, I can't be doing with the conflict that might arise from it. And so our conversation was really, really interesting around this. You know, it's something that people have a whole variety of experiences around. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of low key everyday relational situations where we might be aware of maybe the trajectory someone is on. You're thinking, okay, I can see where this is going um, and they're heading in this direction. Like, it, I, I, I know where this ends if something doesn't sort of change here. Um, people are not always receptive to the to those kinds of insights from other people. And however uncomfortable and superficial it feels, there might be times where we have to just sort of let things go or, or to f- try and find ways to steer the ship in in less overt manners. And for like analytically minded sensitive people, they might gravitate towards roles that where they're kind of able to use this ability to predict and to anticipate and to mitigate against future problems or things that they see. Okay. It's all set up in this way. Uh, this could kind of lead to these potential problems in the future. So let's kind of work on those right now. Um, and, and mitigate against that so that it doesn't come to pass um, that we're going to have to deal with that down the line. We talked about the importance of um, understanding people's differences here and communicating well, you know, in the family or, or the friendship example, it might be construed as criticism or judgment when this, this kind of sense of awareness and wariness is raised. Um, and you might be raising the concerns because you care because you want someone to succeed at what they're doing, because you want this deeper vision to come to life. You might be seeing something, there's some real amazing thing going on here and just be aware that this might happen. So let's, let's change that. And that might be construed as criticism, might be construed as judgment. You know, some people will not be receptive no matter how you approach or change it. Well, for others, it's just, okay, I just need to approach this in a way that puts us on the same page. It makes them aware that we do share the same values and the same vision here. I want the best outcome for you. And to then communicate that in a, in a gentle way with a firm back and a soft front to be sure about what it is that you're bringing there, but also to, to be, to be gentle, to be receptive to their needs as we go. So the wariness of highly sensitive people can be a huge benefit to society, you know, anticipating problems, that might come down the line because of what's going on right now, connecting dots, predicting future trends and shifts, uh, and also seeing, okay, these are things that we can address right now so that that doesn't happen. Um, But it's often overlooked or ignored because it's, you know, potentially expensive to change things now for things that we don't guarantee are going to happen down the line. Um, And I mean, sometimes that sometimes our voices might be overlooked because we don't speak up sometimes because we're written off as pessimistic, which is undoubtedly true on occasion. <laughs> but often we have this weird relationship, don't we, with the idea of positivity and negativity. We think wariness, uh, we sort of greet it as this negative energy. We say, oh, don't be so negative. I, ju- I just want, you know, positive vibes here. Um, when actually it often serves the sustainability of the vision. So bringing that wariness, that awareness, that, that sense of, uh, do you know, like, I think we need to change this. We need to be aware of this. That's actually positive. That's not negative. And the negative thing is to, to be like, don't, don't talk to me about the, the negatives. Um, 
I've got a friend who talks about a time just before the pandemic when he, he told he's on this executive team in his company, he told the rest of the team they needed to, to prepare for working from home. It's just like, you know, COVID was just becoming a thing. Um, and it was only a matter of time, he said, before it's going to happen. We, we, the, everyone's going to be working from home. We need to get a head start. We need to transition well. We need to transition smoothly so it's not so too disruptive to the company. Um, and when he, when he brought that, he was ignored, written off as being kind of ridiculous because, you know, how, how would that ever happen? This is not something that could possibly happen. And then when it did happen, it was a case of, right, we need to catch up with this spending a lot more money in a marketplace where, you know, demands increase, supply is also playing catch up. So everything's getting more expensive to, to do and you're desperately trying to solve these problems that um, are now very, very urgent. Um, and you know, he said he was asked like, how did you know, like, how did you know this was going to happen? <laughs> and he, you know, he can't predict the future, but he can connect dots. He reads, he has conversations with people who know about things in these different areas. And from experience, he could make a pretty good guess. Uh, okay. These are things we might need to, to kind of be thinking about, to be aware of, to be focusing on, um, over the next couple of months. But people don't like to look at problems that aren't right in front of them a lot of the time. You know, I had an old boss who used to say, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Um, but anytime you brought a solution to a problem, uh, like my friend with preparing for, for okay, we, we need to prepare everyone to work from home, the solution would be rejected because he didn't want to know about the problem. <laughs> he didn't want to know that there was a problem that you were solving. So it's just his way of saying, I just want to react. Essentially, I just want to live my life reacting and we will adapt to whatever comes our way. Um, and so, in other words, we're just going to be firefighters, um, proverbial firefighters, rather than proactively designing and creating a world that, that is kind of aware it's mitigating against problems occurring before they occur. Or if they can't be avoided, it mitigates against unnecessary byproducts of the problem. Things that we can well predict and we can well anticipate right now. You know, it's one of the things that we've we've become very good at ignoring and avoiding as a world. We seem to stumble from one crisis into another without ever heeding the wariness, listening to the awareness shared by those who know what they're talking about, those who are making these predictions. We write them off as fearmongers and naysayers. And we seek ways to maybe smear their credibility, to shut them up. And the other way we confuse um, the effective and positive wariness of sensitive anticipation is by arguing that past predictions didn't come to pass there by proving that it was fear mongering. It, it was the kind of someone with some kind of nefarious or ulterior motive was trying to get us to act in whatever way, largely ignoring how the warnings were heeded and the proactive steps that were taken that meant that the problem that they were warning about didn't come to pass. Not because it, it, it was never a thing, but because we've actually, you know, s stopped it before it became a thing. You know, we love to focus on that result and ignore the actions that were taken by those who actually made things safe, made things ready. You know, how often we take this approach of, ah, you know, it was fine last time. Stop moaning, just get on with it. Like, you know, it worked out. It worked out great. Not realizing that the reason it was fine was <laughs> because of a moment like this where, yeah, 
yeah, we, we need to prepare. We need to just be aware of what's going on and adjust accordingly. In relation to our own endeavours, our wariness of success is an important thing to listen to. You know, there are very real risks that come with making change or pursuing success. It doesn't mean we shouldn't. It just means we can move forward in ways um, that are more likely to ensure sustainability, momentum, and a steady sense of, of growth um, in the direction that we want to go on the things that we want to be um, tending to. So often this conversation becomes one where we just assume that we should eradicate the fear. We should fight it. We should ignore it. But life is about listening to our feelings and acting in partnership with them so that we can bring what's alive in us to life outside of us. And when we have a healthy relationship with these feelings, we suddenly see resources everywhere that can help solidify our path and help us move in a meaningful direction without having to make the same mistakes and go through the same pains that we've been warned about by others that we've seen other people go through. We have this weird desire, don't we, to, um, to see for ourselves. I just want to see for myself. Jim Carrey famously said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Um, and I, I find you know, a slightly provocative um, statement and I find the responses, especially when people are provoked, the responses to this quote quite funny because invariably there's always people who say, well, that's easy for you to say when you are rich. I want to find out for myself. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I trust what I see when I, when I see the struggles of the proverbial rich and famous. But I don't need to be in that position myself to be aware of um, what could be highly problematic about that sort of rich and famous position. And if we can listen to this wariness and we're able to redefine success in terms that feel good to us rather than flowing with the weird societal view of what that means... It's the same with any aspirational position. You know, if we can recognise its trappings and the challenges with it, we can better prepare ourselves for moments that we might need to go there. We can better prepare ourselves with an understanding, with a definition of, okay, why does this matter to me? What is it about this that matters to me? Right, that's the thing I can focus on. And all of these byproducts, all of these contingent things that come with that are things that are, like I can sort of park within that context. In their book, Active Hope, Joanne Macy and Chris Johnston write, each story of how we see the world carries within it assumptions about what we mean by doing well and doing harm. Within business as, as usual, which is a, a kind of one of three stories that they, they tell of in this book, a country is doing well if its economy is growing, a business is doing well if it's expanding, a person is doing well if their income is increasing. And so success is often limited, isn't it, to a lens of this, this sort of doing well thing, this outward growth and expansion. But what if we incorporated an understanding of success as our ability to integrate wariness into the choices we make, the approaches we take, and the values that we infuse the world with through our lives? anticipating and planning for what is likely to happen is different from worrying about what could happen. When we're allowed to prepare for likely side effects of success, we can honour those feelings, we can work with them, we can design our path in an effective, meaningful and joyful way. Wariness is a definable pause. It allows us to assess, analyse 
and decide how we want to proceed based on other factors, such as our values, the potential implications on a variety of areas, of things, of aspects of our life, and how it will impact us in general. Success is not just about goals, is it? You know, we've been sort of talking about this a little bit during this episode. It's a word that we use in much more intangible ways as well. We all want to be successful. This is something I've seen written almost everywhere as I've been like looking around this topic. Almost everywhere that this idea of fear of success and conversation about fear of failure and all this sort of stuff um, occurs. This this idea we all want to be successful, don't we? Um, and I've just been sort of left thinking, what does that mean? You know, there's there's very few explanations. It's just sort of assumed that this is something we understand. We all want to be successful. Okay, sh- sure. But what does that mean? Like, uh, we, and uh, we, we must be setting ourselves up to fail by introducing such a woolly metric to judge our life by as well. It's such a, an intangible idea that we are always falling short of. The stories we internalized growing up can have a bearing on our relationship with change in the present. You know, these stories inform whether we feel worthy or deserving of success. Many of us carry a a version of success that we might have never questioned. It might be tied up with the story we were given by other people. And I wonder, how, how do you generally define success? How do you know when something that you are sort of doing or whatever has succeeded? It might be achieving something tangible that's important to you. It might be earning a lot of money. It might be getting to the top. Is this a definition you've chosen or is it one that's been passed on to you? Does it have a, a, a specific, like, do you, do you know what that looks like? Do you know where they, the end point of that success is? Or is it that perpetual mirage, that sense that we all want to be successful, but we're never, none of us ever are successful because it's an impossible, uh, an impossible metric or a a, a bar, a slippery bar of soap as something to measure our value or our worthiness in life by. If you grew up being encouraged to succeed in a particular way, you might feel unable to embrace other parts of yourself, even if you know, okay, these are the things that actually I want to nurture. These are the things that I want to focus on uh, bringing to life and making more time and energy for. Where success might be intangible, unmeasurable parts of life. It can be really difficult to detach this drive for success as achievement from success as that unconditional acceptance of being or the deep sense of inner peace and wellness that you want to experience, the things that you know are more important, the relationships, the the more intangible aspects of life or that kind of joy that we talked about earlier. When success has been ingrained in us as something we measure, it can be like looking through bulletproof glass at a museum exhibit or all these aspects of ourselves that we are know we know are really really important we want to pick up we want to embrace but we can't get to we know they matter we know that true enjoyment connection love belonging these are not things we can strive our way towards yet the processes the mechanisms and the approaches that we know the things that we've been conditioned to um, follow these scripts that we follow are underpinned by striving, achievement, and reaching. That's what we know. 
So we can see these aspects of ourselves, but we can't touch them because we have the wrong tools to get to them. The tools we have are, and, and are kind of used to using are forward-facing active tools that are designed to forge and craft. And what we need is to let go, to trust, to surrender, to allow ourselves to lean back against that glass, to be taken through it, to morph with it. Maybe our definition of success changes as we move through seasons of life. Perhaps this is part of our process of becoming. Maybe we need to define success in more material terms at some point, you know, financial security, finding somewhere comfortable to live, all that kind of thing. These might be important to us, but they might be things that aren't important to us, definitions passed on to us that we are encouraged to prioritise. This is something only we can figure out for ourselves, only we can know from our own experiences and lives. But the shift of definition to something more internal, whether it's like peace of mind or um, connection in relationships, health, um, you know, making memories, whatever it is, that might be something that we come to value once and only once we've got that stable uh, material foundation beneath us. Or it might be that these are the things that matter most from the start and all the other things, all the other kind of more material successes actually are more likely to come into place once we're living with those inner definitions of success prioritised and they're, they're part of our sort of ongoing sense of being. That's certainly true for me. You know, I've, I value uh, stability and security, but not at the expense of the things that make life meaningful, which um, to me have never been material possessions. Um, and wealth. But how do we make the shift when we're ready to change our relationship with what matters most? To be honest, the transition is messy. It requires a lot of untangling of established inner code and assumptions and scripting and approaches and to build a firm sense of what matters most to us because we can quickly become alienated from our own definitions of success by subtle messages that come to us from the world around us. And that's we're kind of sure of, okay, this, this is what matters most to me. In our Cotter meeting, I shared a, an experience I had a few years ago. Uh, and I was at work and bumped into somebody that um, I hadn't seen for a while. I didn't see that often, but kind of knew we were, we were very friendly with each other. And he asked me like in a friendly way, you know, how, how are you doing? And whether I was uh, rich and famous yet, which was a well-meaning question in a, you know, a fine, warm conversation. But it stuck with me. It was like a, a slow gut punch that I dwelt on for quite a long time afterwards, days afterwards. Um, you know, in the, in the moment, I, I laughed and said, well, no, not yet. And I think it was perhaps my own response that jarred with me too, because it somehow validated the premise of the question. But in general, it was a question attaching something that didn't matter to me to something that was important to me. It was like I came face to face with a judgment that my music is a pursuit that only has worth if and when it makes me rich and famous. Um, so all these underlying um, kind of implicit assumptions that sort of I obviously read into it, you know, with overthinking and everything. But there was also an, an element of truth to this. And the lack of opportunity to talk about what actually brings me a sense of connection to that endeavor, you know, the stuff that I, that brings me to create music, the things that are happening between me and my music at that moment and how I'd actually think about 
and conceptualize success as it was meaningful for me within that pursuit. This all reinforced this sense that, you know, what matters to me doesn't seem that important. And at moments like this, it takes a lot of strength and energy and that firm back, soft front gentleness to reconnect and to engage the compass and to see things, you know, that this is, this is what they are for me. This is what matters to me. And to, to sort of let go of that lens that feels shaming and belittling, you know, that, that kind of viewpoint that, that makes you feel like, okay, I'm failing, you know, maybe you have something that when spoken about in certain ways makes you feel small or belittled in some way, you know, it happens with creative hobbies quite a lot, you know, where people project their own vision of what success means onto other people's endeavors. So vision is usually informed by uh, popular mainstream culture, you know, a lot of the time where there's particular signs that um, things are valuable and valid, you know, like it, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, the, the way that you judge something's value is something you've picked up from maybe a TV show or whatever. Otherwise, it's framed through this kind of condescension. How's your little hobby going? <laughs> that kind of thing. And this links to what I said earlier about the changes that we might set about making and, and people being surprised and sometimes intimidated by them. You know, we've got frames of reference for things. And when we're not familiar with a particular field beyond a kind of mainstream basic understanding, we might struggle to engage with the nuance and the meaning of it. You know, what, what is it about this that actually somebody connects with? Um, you know, at the creative level, at the level of craft or, or whatever, we sort of only see it through this, this lens of, um, well, I know that music is something that people get rich and famous doing. Therefore, that must be what you are striving for or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Realizing that other people's judgments, both overt and implicit, can re- derail us is an important thing to be aware of as we think about our approach to important changes and pursuits and projects and to 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 recognize them as as naive as well and to recognize them not as judgments of us but as saying something about the other person and to to then use that as a trigger to reconnect to that important thing to the thing that we are um you know wanting to i guess build around and create or whatever it is and another way success might become an internalized story is through our proximity to it and whether we feel permitted or allowed to dream to desire to strive for things that matter to us fear of success might actually be tied to a feeling for example that it's wrong to get what you want or that it's wrong to want anything at all you know this is a message that might come from uh, childhood family experiences for example you know, money shouldn't be wasted on unnecessary things. We're very utilitarian about the way that we use our resources. Therefore, the idea of wanting something beyond what is necessary, what is basic, what is needed, is uh, self-indulgent. It's, it's wrong at some, some level of judgment. Um, might be strong belief systems. You know, might be taught that actually your des- it's wrong to desire. Your natural desires are bad. They're things you should avoid, ignore or destroy. They are, you know, tests of your will, tests of your ability to, um, to deny those, um, those kind of feelings that you might have or whatever. Or growing up with someone demanding, for example, a, a family member who 
just kind of sucks all the energy and the attention from others. And so it seems like, okay, you know, well, every, everything's been channeled towards them, but also you don't want to be like that yourself. And so this script might dictate a sense of fear and distrust of our own joy. Um, and so we might unconsciously punish ourselves by sabotaging positive opportunities and experiences. We might notice patterns whereby actually it seems that anything good seems to just fall apart or get lost. Sometimes we can actually be an active part of this pattern without realizing, fulfilling the story that we've been taught to live out, the story that we've practiced over and over growing up. So as we finish up here, I want to just leave you with some questions to ponder. Um, so what does success mean to you? You know, talked about that already. Like if you've never really thought about it, I'd love to encourage you to, to maybe pen a definition for yourself. What would it mean to live a successful life? How would you know when you're there? Are there any parts of your life you're blocking joy from getting in right now? What would it take for you to surrender to joy? Are there any pressures to make yourself, your endeavours, your relationships useful rather than joyful? And what could be possible if you flipped that and focused on enjoying yourself, enjoying your endeavours, enjoying your life? Think about people who embody joy that you know. What does that look like? What can you absorb from their relationship with life? What would need to change in your inner script, if you were to reflect their expression of joy in your own way? These are not necessarily questions to answer directly, but ones to just maybe hold with you. Observe what you notice, allow them to move with you as you engage with awareness and wariness and fear, worry, excitement, hope, happiness. I'd love to hear from you in response to this episode. Um, please do feel free to get in touch via social media or through uh, the contact form on the website or via email or whatever. Let me know what's resonated with you in this topic. Do you, are there any things in particular that you recognise from your own experiences? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely love to, um, to engage with you on this. Um, and until next time, do remember that even when it appears not to be, gentleness is always an option. Bye-bye. Just one more thing quickly before we finish. Because you're listening to this, I imagine you are a reflective person with a caring, creative and compassionate spirit. And I want to just quickly tell you about The Haven, which is a virtual village for quietly creative misfits just like you. Whether you're looking to build lasting friendships with other gently unconventional people or you simply need some respite from the world's noise right now, I've built The Haven for you. With its cafe, theatre, library and fireside, it's a calm bubble of support and encouragement for gentle rebels. 
It's currently the autumn season in the membership and we're looking at the themes of change, belonging and serenity during September, October and November. Through our conversations in the community as well as resources like the private podcast feed, videos, interviews and short courses, we dive into these themes and ask how we can build healthier, happier and more connected lives in sync with our natural, gentle rhythms. Perhaps you know intuitively that there's so much more within you waiting to burst into life but maybe you don't quite know where to start or how to bring it out in a way that feels good to you. Well, I'd love to welcome you in and show you around The Haven. You can learn more at the-haven.co or you'll find a link in the description for this episode.